My text for today is from Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be looking at the 14th chapter of Romans. Today, we will be considering just an overview of chapter 14. Next Lord's Day, God willing, we will consider the law of liberty. And the following Lord's Day, the law of love. Dear ones, the scripture teaches that we have been purchased from sin with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because we have, we are commanded in the scripture to love strangers. Yes, in Leviticus chapter 19, we are to love strangers, the word of God teaches. Verses 33 and 34, if you want to... Look at that passage, Leviticus 19, verses 33 and 34, read as follows. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, you shall not vex him. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We are commanded in the word of God not only to love strangers, but we are even commanded in God's word to feed enemies who hunger, to give, to drink enemies who thirst, to clothe those who are naked. And yet, if that is God's command with regard to strangers and enemies, how much more it must be true with our very own brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Stealing is always reprehensible when committed against anyone. It's reprehensible when it's committed against a stranger. But yet, how indescribably more heinous is stealing when it is your very own father and mother that you rob. Those who have given life to you, who have brought you into this world and sacrificed so much to rob from them is even more heinous in God's sight. It's an aggravation of that particular sin of stealing. In the same way, it is not less despicable to venture anger toward a family member. It is, in fact, more despicable to do so. To become angry and to venture anger toward your husband or wife or children toward your parents or parents toward your children in an unlawful and unjust way. You see, that is because you have been joined and united to your family, to your husband and wife, to your children. There is a bond there that is not true of those who are outside of the family. You see, that union with a family member calls for greater care, greater love, greater protection of his person and reputation, not less. And yet so often... We would not even think of doing to a stranger what we do to our fellow family members. You know, being comfortable with our family and being able to so-called let down our hair with our family does not mean treating them worse than we treat strangers. If that's how family members 
are treated, it's better to be a stranger than a family member. Let's take this one step further. What is true in the natural realm is also true in the spiritual realm. When you are united to Jesus Christ, God not only becomes your Father, but every believer in Jesus Christ becomes your brother and sister. And if we are to do unto strangers what we would want strangers to do unto us, how much more we are to do unto our brethren what we would have our brethren to do unto us. In the larger catechism, let me find the reference very quickly. This is under question 151 of the larger catechism. The question reads, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? The second way in which sins are made more heinous than others, the second way sins are aggravated, it says, from the parties offended from those whom you actually offend. And it goes on to say, if immediately against God, His attributes and worship, against Christ and His grace, the Holy Spirit, His witness and workings, against superiors, men of eminency, and such as we stand especially related and engaged unto against any of the saints, particularly weak brethren, the souls of them or any other, and the common good of all or many. Against any of the saints is how we even further aggravate Sins that we commit when they are committed against God's people. The scripture makes this very clear in these kinds of distinctions as in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. After telling the people of Corinth that they are not to take one another to court before the civil magistrates, these unrighteous judges. He says in verse 8, Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. You do wrong, but especially you do wrong in that you defraud these who are your brothers. You are joined and united to them. You aggravate the sin. And then in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Again, we see this distinction that God draws between those who are the brotherhood and those who are outside of that relationship. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Especially to these. If husbands are, as God commands, to love, cherish, and care for their wives as their own bodies... Because they are one flesh with their wives. That's taught in Ephesians 5.28. How much more are we brothers and sisters in Christ to love, cherish, and care for one another even as we care for our own persons and reputations? For we are not simply one flesh with our brothers and sisters. We are one spirit with them. 
one spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 6.17. You see, the marital union will come to an end. But the spiritual union between believers will never come to an end. It is eternal. In other words, dear ones, whenever we become resentful or bitter towards a brother or sister, whenever we gossip to others, condemning, pulling down a brother or a sister, in an unjust and unlawful way, we destroy ourselves, for we are one spirit with them. When you are bound to another, you cannot hurt them without hurting yourself. And you cannot bless them without blessing yourself. You see, if you understand the principle, your growth in Christ, your growth in grace, in love, in patience, in understanding, in holiness, in gentleness, in joy, is directly proportionate to your striving to pray for, to encourage, and to work to see your own growth in Christ, or their, to see the growth in Christ in others. <clears throat> but beloved, even more important than hurting yourself when you hurt a brother or sister by your sin is the fact that what you do to a brother or sister is done into Christ, is done into Jesus Christ for all are joined to the head. They are simply members of the body of Christ, of which Christ is the head. And we find that principle beautifully illustrated for us in Matthew chapter 25. As it says there, the nations are gathered before Christ. And they are judged on this particular basis. Some of you visited Christ when he was in prison. Some of you fed Christ when he was hungry. Some of you clothed Christ when he was naked. Some of you visited him in his persecution. And on and on it goes. And they say to the Lord, when did we do this unto you, Lord? Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Enter into your reward. But on the other hand, the judgment and condemnation, the same questions asked. You did not visit me when I was in prison. You did not care for me when I was persecuted. You did not feed me when I was hungry. You did not give me to drink when I was athirst. It did not clothe me when I was naked. When did we not do these things, Lord? Inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it unto me. And that is why the Apostle Paul can declare so emphatically in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. And thus, he says, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. In wounding the conscience of the weak, you sin against Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, when we place a stumbling block in the path of a brother or sister so that our sin leads them to sin, they are responsible for their sin. But I am responsible or becoming a stumbling block in leading them into that sin. <clears throat> the scripture tells us, and I'm just about ready to look at Romans 14, but the scripture tells us, 
All this by way of introduction. That we can have a great deal of knowledge, but if we do not have love, we are nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are simply sounding brass and clanging cymbals if we do not have love for the brethren. We're a lot of noise, in other words. But God says, Paul says, nevertheless, if that's our situation, we are nothing. As we now turn our attention to Romans chapter 14, as I said earlier, uh, don't expect to have all the questions that, that you may have about this particular chapter answered today. Uh, for that matter, don't expect that every question you might have will be answered after three weeks uh, looking at this chapter. But, but we will be looking at the chapter more in a summary form today. I want to kind of give the, the larger context and then we will focus on, as I said, in the coming weeks, the law of liberty, liberty of conscience and what that is. And then we'll be looking at the law of love as well. As we consider the, the book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul, in this letter it has been often noted that there are two primary sections to the book of Romans or to the letter to Roman to the Romans, as is true in other letters which Paul has written. There is the section that deals primarily with doctrine, with the knowledge of God, with what, our, what we are to believe concerning God and His truth. And the second section that of a more practical outliving of that doctrine. We might call it practical theology. Theology, in the first section, chapters 1 through 11. Practical theology, chapters 12 through 16 of Romans, chapter 4, or in the book of Romans. <clears throat> Under the section dealing with doctrine... Paul addresses primarily two issues. If I were to summarize the two main issues that Paul addresses, it would be summarized this way. First of all, the condemnation of all men in Adam. And second of all, the salvation of God, the salvation of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Under the section of practical theology, Paul addresses issues like our relationship to one another in the church, our relationship to our enemies, our relationship to a lawful civil government. And in the section that we are looking at today, in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul addresses and speaks to a problem in that particular church related to issues of conscience. And as I said, we will consider the law of liberty and the law of love specifically. Well, let's look more specifically at Romans chapter 14. And first of all, consider point number one, the problem in Rome. The problem in Rome. As Paul specifically writes these words in Romans chapter 14, he does have a problem in mind that is occurring in that church. It appears that there were differences of conviction in the church of Rome as to which kinds of food may be eaten, or which kinds of beverages may be used and partaken of, which days throughout the year were especially holy. The potential for destroying the work of God in Rome, 
through either a judgmental attitude, condemning and judging those who did not share the opinion of the weak brother, and, on the other hand, the haughty and proud attitude of those who called and were, in reality, the strong, but their attitude toward those who were weak. One of pride and haughtiness. These two attitudes Paul specifically addresses and deals with in this particular chapter. Apparently, some of the Jewish believers in Rome, we're still in this transition period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant as to certain practices. And they believed that they needed yet to avoid any unclean meat or unclean drink, especially wine, as is stated in Romans 14.21 which apparently they believed had become ceremonially unclean through contamination, through corruption, in either preparation or through being dedicated or offered to idols. And rather than take chances in offending God or their consciences, they became vegetarians and drank no wine. While on the other hand, you had other believers in the Church of Rome who enjoyed the liberty to eat and drink all the things which God had created for their use. But that was not the only issue. There were also, and no doubt, the same group of Jewish Christians who yet observed certain of the feast days from the Old Covenant calendar that were appointed by God in the Old Covenant. For example, feast days like the Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles or these various uh, feast days. And again, they did not want to offend the Lord or their conscience by ceasing to observe days that they were not convinced had been done away with. While other believers in the Church of Rome, again, did not believe that those days were yet binding upon God's people in the New Covenant. Now, The issue here, I want to make clear, has not to do with whether there is one day out of seven that we are to sanctify and set apart for holy use, namely the Sabbath day. The Jewish Sabbath, yes, is a part of that old covenant and that ceremony. The Jewish Sabbath, with all of its distinctive elements, that pertain to the Old Covenant has been done away. But the moral equity of that commandment, one day set apart from the other six, continues and abides to be true. And so the Apostle is not saying that some treat all days alike, including the Sabbath, but some set apart one day, namely the Sabbath. And those who set apart one day, namely the Sabbath, are the weak brethren. That's not the point. That's not what is being stated here. Again, it has to do with the Old Testament, with those particular ceremonial distinctions. If you look... In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, you find again this word weak applied to those who did not partake of certain foods, certain meats, nor did they partake of the wine, nor did they, nor did they um, cease to celebrate all of the, of the um, Old Testament, Old Covenant feasts. 
him that is weak in the faith. That is the terminology that the apostle uses for those who hold that view. Weak. Weak in that their conscience has not been instructed and informed as to the truth at that particular point with regard to these areas of food and drink and days. On the other hand, we find that the word strong is used. Romans 15, 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. The strong, those whose consciences are instructed and informed as to their liberty to enjoy all of these things that the others could not do, that the weak could not do. The difference has to do with the conscience, the knowledge by which the, the, the conscience is instructed and guided. <clears throat> and so what we find happening in Romans chapter 14 is that the weak were extremely critical extremely judgmental. They were condemning the, the strong who could partake. They were, in a sense, saying, how could they really care about holiness and living for the Lord when they can eat those contaminated foods or treat God's feast days if they were nothing? You see, what they were doing, they were condemning believers in an area which God had made lawful. They were condemning them in an area God said, you have no right to condemn them in. This was a sin on their part. They needed to understand, the weak brother needed to understand the law of liberty and to practice the law of liberty. You find passages throughout Romans chapter 14 like this. Verse 3, the second part of verse 3 says, And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. See, that was the problem. Those who were not eating were judging and condemning those who could eat. You find in verse 4, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Who do you think you are judging this one who can eat with a clear conscience? Who can drink this wine with a clear conscience? Who do you think? This is my servant. His conscience is directed by the Word of God. He has liberty in this area to do this. <clears throat> But on the other hand, the group that were comprised of those who were strong in faith <clears throat> were haughty and proud. They were boastful and they looked down their noses with contempt at the Jewish believers who were weak in faith. In this area, they flaunted their liberty before the Jewish believers. And their attitude was more of this nature. How could those Jewish Christians really be so naive and so ignorant of the truth? What's wrong with these infantile Jewish Christians? And so this by way of summary, appears to be the, the problem that's occurring in the Church of Rome. Let me make one point before I pass on to the second point. We, Paul does not teach 
that to believe something erroneously, to propagate false teaching or false doctrine, is simply a question of weakness as to conscience. That is not the issue. The issue has to do with a transitory period. It has to do with things that are indifferent, like food and drink. And this period of time, this small window of time when they were passing from one covenant to the other, it has to do with that. It does not deal with issues of doctrine and truth. One is not simply weak in conscience when it comes to issues of doctrine. That is an entirely different kind of situation. That is not what Paul has in mind in this particular chapter. Keep that in mind as, you, as we proceed the next two or three weeks. We will see that more and more to be the case. The second main point, we've looked at the problem now, the second main point is that, the, that of the biblical position that is maintained here by the Apostle Paul. There is a biblical position in regard to this issue of weakness or strength in faith. In regard to areas that are indifferent in and of themselves, food in and of itself is indifferent. How you use the food is not indifferent, but the use of the thing itself is indifferent, or the, the thing itself is indifferent. Wine in and of itself is indifferent, but how you use wine is not indifferent. There is a biblical position that the Apostle Paul does maintain in Romans chapter 14. And let no one miss what is the biblical position in these areas. The Apostle Paul says that the Christian has been granted liberty in Jesus Christ. And we will speak next time Next Lord's Day, we will address all that that liberty involves in greater detail, but he has been granted liberty in Jesus Christ to partake of these things like food, meat, drink, wine. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. He says in verse 20, with regard to the use of the meat though, how should the meat be used? There's nothing wrong with the meat. But as to the use of the meat, he says in verse 20, for meat destroy not the work of God, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. The man who causes offense, causes a stumbling block, it does become something evil and sinful. The Apostle Paul's own conviction, which is that of an inspired apostle, is stated very clearly in, in Romans 15.1. We then that are strong, he identifies himself with those who are strong, we then are, who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And so make no mistake that Paul says the biblical position with regard to this issue is that of liberty. One has the liberty to partake of these things. Throughout the chapter, you will notice these points that the apostle drives home. One point he drives home is that he will not compromise. Paul is not about to compromise the position of the strong. 
He's not about to say, well, the church can have either position. The church can have the position of the strong or the church can have the position of the weak. You see, that's not up for grabs. The position of the church must be one of strength with regard to these areas. It cannot be one of weakness. The official position of the church has to be one of strength. One other point that the Apostle Paul makes in this overview of Romans chapter 14 is that, again, the position of the weak cannot become the position of the church as it apparently became in Galatians. In the church, churches of Galatia, that is one of the reasons why the apostle takes a much stronger hand uses much more forceful, forceful language in, in the letter to the Galatians, is because the position of the weak had been assumed by essentially the whole church. They, as a church, were, were sliding backwards. They were defecting from the truth of the, the position of strength. And furthermore, they had even added as a as a part of what one must believe in order to be justified, not simply faith, but these very positions of weakness. A third point that the Apostle makes about this biblical position This is more, I suppose, an application that I'm making from Paul's writings. But let me state it this way. It's one thing with regard to holy days. It's one thing to allow a transition from shadows of old covenant, of the old covenant, shadows as in feasts and festivals which were actually appointed by God it's one thing to allow that transitory period from that stage to the stage of the new covenant where these particular feasts and festivals have been fulfilled in Christ. It's an entirely different thing, however, to allow men of their own will and appointment to say that this in addition to the Sabbath in this particular day and age, is a holy day. This is a day which the church must honor. This is a day in which we must gather to worship the Lord. You see, that's something different from what the Apostle was dealing with. And one last thing, very quickly, that the Apostle addresses in his biblical position here. <clears throat> and we will look at this more in detail later also. To forego one's liberty or to be denied one's liberty is not the same thing as to deny or to sacrifice or to willingly give one's use of liberty. There's a difference between denying a liberty and sacrificing the use of a liberty. We must understand that distinction. We ought never to deny liberty that we have in Jesus Christ because God alone is the Lord of the conscience. But we as Christians can for the sake of our brethren temporarily until they are instructed in the position of strength, we can forego the use and exercise and enjoyment of liberties in Christ.
I don't want people to look at this Romans chapter 14 so simplistically that they would say, well, anybody who doesn't drink wine is a weak brother and anyone who drinks wine is a strong brother. No, that's not the issue. There are many reasons why someone may not use wine. If they're strong, they're not going to say it's sinful to drink wine, for sure. But they may refuse to use wine for other reasons. They may not like the taste. They may have some kind of allergic reaction to it. They may have uh, earlier in their life abused the use of wine. And so they have chosen, by way of prudence, not to continue to use wine. Not because it's sinful, but just as an act of wisdom on their part. Or they may, a Christian may not use wine because they believe at that particular point in time it could become a stumbling block to a weak brother who yet believes it is sinful and who may, when he sees you using it, he may use it himself and thereby violate his conscience at that point. And so, this is the theology, this is the biblical position that we find articulated by Paul in Romans 14. And the final point is the application. The application that Paul makes throughout this chapter. God makes it abundantly clear that there are biblical and loving ways to use our freedom in Christ. And there are unbiblical and unloving ways to use our liberty. One is justified and the other is condemned by the Apostle Paul. The act of doing something may not be sinful in and of itself. But because we do not use it for God's glory, because we do not use it to build up and to edify our brother or our sister in Christ, that act can become as sinful as if it were condemned in and of itself. Dear ones, Our freedom is not a freedom to do as we please. That is not liberty in Christ. To live as we please is slavery and bondage to self. Liberty is the ability by God's grace to obey God's commandments. To put to death sin in our life. To no longer be under the dominion of sin, to enjoy our freedom, forgiveness of sin, to enjoy all that Christ has purchased for us is liberty in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. That's what Paul is teaching in Romans, what he says there in Galatians. There are two sins that God particularly condemns in this section in the lives of those who call Him Lord. Two essentially sins. This is the application part. First sin, as we've already noted, is that critical, judgmental heart of the weak that seeks to be prosecutor, jury, and judge all wrapped up in one person in areas that God has not prohibited where there is freedom and liberty. In these areas, in these situations, the weak must become strong. They must not be left in their weakness. I cannot think of anything more unloving than to leave one who is weak in conscience in his weakness or in her weakness. True love 
Biblical love will instruct, will guide the conscience, will give the knowledge that is needed to become strong. The weak must patiently be instructed. They must be willing to be instructed, not defensive. The weak must not view their conscience as being some kind of infallible and independent standard from the Word of God. You see, that happens all too often. Someone says, I would violate my conscience. But when you find out what they believe their conscience dictates and show them what the Word of God says, still, even in situations where the Word of God is clear as to what it is saying by its entire testimony, people yet maintain that argument, I cannot violate my conscience. You see, weak those who are weak in these areas must not maintain their conscience as infallible or independent from the Word of God. God alone is Lord of the conscience. No man is Lord of our conscience, not even the man himself. God alone. And God speaking by His Spirit through His Word. But until in these periods of weakness, While they are being instructed, how should they be counseled? Do not violate your conscience until, by God's truth, you have come to a conviction that you can enjoy and partake of these things. Until that time that their conscience is informed and they can stand upon the Word of God, we cannot encourage them to violate their conscience simply to be to restrain or to continue to not partake of those things, but all along working to the goal of strength. <clears throat> the second sin condemned in this chapter by the Apostle Paul, as we've noted, is that of that sin committed by the, the strong. That of proud contempt and despising the weak. For example, in Romans chapter 14, this is what the strong were doing to the weak. Romans chapter 14, verse 3. Verse verse 3, the first part of verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Those who were eating, those who were strong, were despising those who did not eat. And so there is this reciprocal sin that is going from the strong to the weak and the weak to the strong. Paul rather encourages the strong in in chapter 15, verse 1, to bear with the infirmities of the weak during this period of instruction. If the weak were to say, I will remain in my weakness and I'm not going to change. That's a different problem. Then you've got a problem of outright rebellion and disobedience against the truth of God's Word. But while the weak are moving in this this transitory period from one stage of weakness to strength, bear with their weakness in these things that are indifferent. You see, this person who is strong is a person who is likely, in this case, because of the sin that he was committing, is likely to be more concerned for his liberties in Christ. They are, there are legitimate liberties, but he's more concerned with his liberties in Christ, with his rights, with his own self-inflation and flaunting his liberty before the weak brother. His attitude may tend to be, after all, that's the weak brother's problem. It's his weakness. It's not my problem. 
He's the one with the weak conscience. I'm the one who's right. I'm the one who has a strong conscience. But again, the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Knowledge without love simply puffs a person up and gives them a big head. But knowledge with love edifies. Not love without knowledge, but knowledge with love builds up and edifies. You see, it's not an either-or situation. Either you're going to know certain things and then you're going to be puffed up or you're going to just simply exercise love and you're going to edify. No, what Paul is saying is knowledge with love. It's a both-and proposition. So this strong brother in this section is missing a gracious, humble spirit of love that willingly sets aside the use of his liberties. Does not set aside his liberties in Christ. That cannot never be done. But sets aside temporarily the use of his liberties so as to minister to one who is weak. In fact, the Apostle Paul, I believe, uses a hyperbolic statement in 1 Corinthians 8.13. 1 Corinthians 8.13, when he says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul says, that if my eating meat will make my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Now, the only way that it's going to make a brother offend or stumble is if Paul is doing it publicly. So it certainly doesn't mean that even in that situation that Paul could not eat meat privately. But Paul is simply, again, making a, a very general uh, point If meat causes my brother to stumble, I will sacrifice the exercise of my liberty so as to build him up and not destroy him. And so, our conclusion, brothers and sisters, Just some questions. How can we, for whom Christ was willing to forsake the enjoyment of His liberty in heaven, who became sin for us, who though He was rich, became poor for us, how can we cling to our own so-called rights? How can we cling to the exercise of our liberties when we would cause a brother to stumble, to fall? I think this area will test the true maturity of Christians perhaps quicker than most. For this is the grace of God alone that can cause one not to to be judgmental or proud toward others and even be willing to forsake the use of one's liberties in order to build up and edify a brother who is growing and learning the things of God. Dear ones, on the last day, the Lord our judge will not reward us for all the liberties we enjoyed at the expense of others but He will reward all that we willingly sacrificed and joyfully gave up temporarily in order to serve others. Whose life and liberty are we enjoying after all? Is it not Christ's life and liberty? 
We must never sacrifice our liberty in Christ. However, God help us to always be willing to lay aside the use of liberty at times so as to win others or to edify others. Let us stand in prayer. Father, the kingdom of God is not eating or drinking. The kingdom of God is not clothing. The kingdom of God is not of these things. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that Thou would remind us afresh today of our duties and responsibilities in these areas of weakness and strength, that we would ever be striving to be strong in our use of those liberties which Christ has granted to us, that we would never forsake or deny those liberties, that we would be willing again to minister as Christ laid down His life as the Lord Jesus was willing to set aside those glories that he enjoyed in heaven in order to become a servant, become a a slave, as it were, taking upon himself a form of man and dying the cruel and wretched and cursed death upon the cross. Lord, let us be willing as those who enjoy great liberties yet in order to win others, let us be willing to minister to others by setting them aside. Lord, we, we ask that Thou would use Thy Word this day to strengthen and encourage us in our faith. Lord, we praise Thee that Thou will never leave us nor forsake us, that Thou art our God And we are joined to Thee forever. And Father, we do exult in our glorious status as Thy children. We ask, Father, that Thou would cause us to reflect upon our life, yes, but even upon our death, that we would not have the idea that all that we do is concerned with the things of this life, But God, cast our hearts and affections upon Thee and our treasures that they might be in heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.